Well, I should have mentioned earlier before, my, name, my wife's name is Catherine, and my daughter, she's 17 months old, her name is Vivian. They are both out of town for a sister-in-law's uh, baby shower, so otherwise they would be here with me, but uh, I would love to show you pictures of both of them. So, have you ever been conned before or scammed before in your life? Well, I have. Let me tell you about it. Uh, when I graduated from college, like many college students, I did not have much money in my bank account. But what I soon realized is that I had several assets to my name that I could sell and get money. Unfortunately, those assets were in the form of musical instruments. I'm a musician by trade, but I had to sell off these musical instruments to gain the money that I needed to just live life. And so I sold off a drum set, a guitar, an amp, a pedal board, a saxophone, and eventually I had to sell what was called a, a hammered dulcimer. Now, there might be a couple of you who know what that is, but this, it's this Appalachian folk instrument, trapezoid, with strings across it, you hit these little wooden hammers. It's a really beautiful instrument, but it had to go. So I, I put it up on either eBay or Craigslist, I don't remember, and I, it seemed instantaneously that I got a, a hit back. Guy sent an email, said, this is great, I would love to buy your hammered dulcimer from you. Uh, but here's how it's going to go. I have an associate who's coming through Nashville, that's where I lived at the time, and he's going to purchase not just your hammered dulcimer, but a, several different instruments within the area. And so what would be helpful for me is if I sent you the check, not just for your hammered dulcimer, but for all these musical instruments. And so what you need to do is take the check, cash the check, get, take the money for yourself for the hammered dulcimer, hand off the rest of the money and the hammered dulcimer to this guy, and he'll come by and pick it up. Now, many of you are probably suspicious at this point, but I was not so suspicious. I'm excited because, hey, I'm going to get the money that I need. And so I, I get excited. I'm like, that sounds great. He sends me the check. Thankfully, I went to my community group at the time, and I'm telling them they knew some of my kind of financial woes at the time. And I said, this is what happened. It's great. He sent me the check. I'm going to go cash it tomorrow. Um, I'm finally having the money I need. And they looked at me and said, Justin, don't cash that check. He, he was... The, the whole point of it was that I would catch the check, the money would bounce, the, the check would be bad, and then I would be the one on the hook for the money. He was a con man. <laughs> uh, con mans are, are, are confidence men. They need to gain your trust or your confidence or your reliance in them in order them, for them to succeed. This psalm is a psalm about confidence. And what is confidence? It's this, it's reliance or trust in someone or something. So take, for instance, a chair. You don't think about it much anymore, but you have confidence in a chair, trust or reliance that when you sit in a chair, it's going to hold you up. So you, have your con you put your confidence in that chair. However, the problem is sometimes chairs break. You put your reliance and your trust and your weight into that thing and it falls apart and you lose your confidence. And it's so easy for us in this life to lose our confidence in something or somebody and perhaps in yourself. And so what David wants to do in this psalm is teach us 
where do we get confidence and who can we really trust? So three points for this is why do we want confidence? Secondly, where is it found? And thirdly, what does it look like? So first, why do we want confidence? Again, look at the very beginning of the passage. David says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David is looking at all these situations around himself, and he's saying, whom shall I fear? What, should, what do I have to fear? And you kind of want to say to David, maybe the army. <laughs> maybe the war that's outside of you. Maybe the people that want to eat up your flesh. Maybe that's something to be fearful for, David. Is this some sort of naive optimism that David is engaging in? Just you know, grin and bear it. Like, it's going to be okay. We're going to be all right. Super spirituality type of stuff. Or is this kind of confidence actually possible. Because most of us in this room have had those experiences where the chair has broken, where the market has crashed, the sudden death in our life. And you wonder, can I actually have trust or confidence in someone or something? Because there are very real fears that we face that are outside of us all the time. Some of you have jobs that might be at risk. You have a boss that you you can't stand and he can't stand you. Some of you are are living through an uncertain financial future where you don't know uh, how you're going to end up paying your bills and you don't have confidence that you're going to. Some of you live with a broken relationship right now and you wonder if you'll ever have that trust or confidence in that person again. Some of you have a nagging sin that just doesn't seem to leave and you wonder, can I ever have hope that it will. Some of you, your health is waning. You got that report that you didn't want to hear, and you don't know how to have confidence for the future. Christianity is actually honest about this reality, that many things in our life are fearful or uncertain. (laughs) This is a result of sin. Sin has disrupted the normal order of the world, and has brought chaos into our lives. And we experience this from day to day. And Ecclesiastes actually tells us that sometimes to try to like harness that or control that is like shepherding the wind. (laughs) Like, let me figure out how to get the wind to do what I want it to do. And so we live in uncertain times because of the sinfulness of the world. But it's in these times of difficulty and times of need that we are looking for someone or something to hold on to, to rely on, to trust. So where do we find it? Well, what are the options? If you went to Google confidence, <laughs> or YouTube confidence, that's a verb now, YouTube, um, if you found, you would, you would find all kinds of things. I mean, millions and millions and millions of pages of people telling you, this is how you can be confident in your life. You'll look up things that say this. Nine ways to boost your confidence at work. 25 killer actions to boost your self-confidence. 63 ways to build self-confidence. 63. What they're all going to be telling you is this. 
that your problem in your life with confidence is actually that you're lacking some sort of self-esteem. You're lacking some sort of self-confidence. What you really need is to believe more in yourself. You need to trust in yourself. They need to rely on yourself and have your hope in yourself. That we all need to be a little bit more like Stuart Smalley, the old SNL character that looked in the mirror and would say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. As often and as, as many times as we can until we become confident enough to face these real fears in our lives. Just a little affirmation to keep reminding us of ourselves that it will be work, that it will work. The self-confidence will work. Well, let me tell you a story. Um, when I was in junior high, I grew up in Texas, uh, and our, our youth group took a trip up to Colorado to go skiing for the very first time. I'd never been skiing before. And so the first time you went skiing with the youth group, they told you you have to uh, take the course on how to ski. So I, uh, I took the course, me and my friend Matt took the course, and kind of went down some hills, you know, kind of figured out what I was doing. And it was a day-long course, but by lunchtime, we had figured it out. <laughs> we knew what we were doing. So we, we went skiing. We went down some kind of bunny slopes, and that was fine, and then hit the green slopes, and, you know, not too bad. Hit a, did a few blues and only fell down a few times. Well, by the end of the day... I find myself on a, a chairlift heading to the top of the mountain, and the only way down is a black. But I'd done all the other ones. All right, I'm fine, right? So I look down, and I put my poles in, and I push off, and I head straight down. And I'm looking down the mountain, and there's this weird hump in front of me, what I've never seen before. And I hit that hump, and I go flying goggles this way, poles this way, skis this way, and I roll down the rest of the mountain. I've been told this is called a yard sale. <laughs> but I was confident that I knew what I was doing, complete self-confidence. G.K. Chesterton says this, complete self-confidence is not merely a sin, complete self-confidence is a weakness. It's unwise at best, and it only leads to anxious toil in our lives, and it doesn't cut it, and you know it. But more than that, self-confidence is actually, he says, a sin, because it's a denial of God's sovereignty and loving care in our lives. James puts it this way. He says, in James 4, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We're going to make this happen. I'm confident of this, is what he's saying. Then he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Self-confidence is arrogance and boasting before the Lord. So how should we think of ourselves properly then? Well, we have to do what David does and what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us is we have to start with God. Start with Him. Look to Him. We don't start with our need. We start with God who meets our needs. 
We start outside of ourselves. Listen again to what David says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Now David is not saying that the Lord gives these things. He says God is these things. God is my light. God is my salvation. He is my stronghold. And five, he is my shelter. He is the one that will lift me up above my enemies. Meaning that he is that and without him, I have nothing. That God is those things for me. And so where does he go to remind himself of this? Verse 4 and on says that he goes into the temple. Verse 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I might seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David goes to worship. He goes to consider again who God is. He, he comes to this place to remind himself of the truth of who God is and specifically the beauty of who God is. He says, I want to dwell there and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to meditate on Him. Why is this important? Because when you see something beautiful, you forget about yourself, even for a moment. You become preoccupied with that thing. You become transfixed by that thing. Like a beautiful sunset, these big Texas sunsets, or if you ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon. I remember when we went to the Grand Canyon, me and my wife, it was freezing outside. But standing on the red edge of the Grand Canyon and looking in, you forgot that it was cold. You're taken into that, or even just driving here, looking out at the beautiful, you know, huge fields and just being taken into it. That when we turn and look and gaze and are transfixed by the beauty of God, it humbles us, it reminds us how small we are, but how beautiful and great our God is. And we say, like the psalmist, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And we gaze and look upon the beauty of the Lord. But still, you might say to me, Justin, not all that glitters is gold. I, maybe you've been disappointed by God in your life or frustrated, or you're angry, or you're confused. And you're wondering, is God himself a con man? Is he the one that will pull the rug out from under me? What absolute assurances do I have that God is not a con man, Justin? What is this based on? Well, it's funny, when, when you read this psalm, that even in the midst of trust, David cries out to God. On one hand, he's saying, I trust you, I know you, I love you, I, I want to be faithful to you, I know that you're going to be there for me. And then he says, then he turns and he says, please be gracious to me. Please do not turn away from me. Please be with me. How do we know that God will not do that? How do we know that he won't con us? Well, again, what we have to do is we have to turn our gaze and wonder and meditate on the beauties of Jesus and Christ on the cross. 
I mean, listen to the words that David says. He says in, in verse, verse 9, Hide not your face away from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. But what we know about on the cross is we sing about it. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That Christ bore the wrath and the anger of God so that we would not bear the anger and the wrath of God. Listen to him again. He says, cast me not off. Cast me not off, God. How do we know that we won't be cast off? Because Christ was. He was, he was killed outside of the camp on our behalf that we might be brought in, brought near to the heart of God. He goes on, forsake me not. How do we know we won't be forsaken? Because Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never be forsaken. That all of our sins, all the things that we deserve because of our lack of trust and confidence in Christ, and confidence in God is poured out on Christ, the just punishment. And he willingly takes it for you, that you might be the beloved of God, you might be brought in, that you would never be cast off again, and that you might know that with absolute assurance. Jesus is the beauty that we gaze at over and over and again, and we wonder at and we worship as we come into this place every week. I love what 1 Corinthians says. It says this, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is not in ourselves, but it is in Christ. So you might not be good enough. Christ is your righteousness. You might not be smart enough. Christ is your wisdom. God doesn't just like you, but he loves you and he gave himself, poured himself out for you. That's the confidence we have. Listen to this beautiful quote from Samuel Rutherford about Christ. He says, Oh, what a fair one, what an only one, what an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. But the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one, put all flowers all trees, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Oh, but Christ is heaven and earth's wonder. He's saying that take all the beauty and the wonder of 10,000 worlds in one drop, and it doesn't compare to Jesus. He is the beauty that we gaze at and wonder of the love of God for you. So what does this confidence look like then? If you know this, if you know the beauties of Christ, and you know that your life and your value and your worth and even your future is tied to that, do you know that you are hidden in Him? And your reputation is hidden in Him. And your future is hidden in Him. Who you are is hidden in Him. You are the beloved of God and nothing can take that away from you. This does what Kel Tim Keller says. It simultaneously humbles us and raises us up to the sky at the same time. He says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. 
Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and, and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. You no longer have to prove yourself, your worth, your value. It's proven in Christ. This also allows you to not take yourself so seriously. <laughs> you're not crushed, completely crushed when you're criticized. You're not completely crushed when you're treated unfairly. You're not completely crushed when you continue to struggle with that sin. That sin is not too big for God to forgive. It is not too big a deal that God cannot forgive it because Christ died on the cross for it. Uh, one of my favorite things about Martin Luther was uh, he always got in these yelling battles with the devil. <laughs> and he tells this story of, um, he, of, of him getting this yelling battle with the devil. And what he says is that if the devil ever comes to you and says, you are worthless, there's no way God would love you. Look at what the things you've done. He lists out the things that you've done. And you feel stand accused because that's what Satan does. He accuses you. He says, what you say to Satan in that moment is, says, actually, you don't know the half of it. You don't know my heart. <laughs> I have done all these things, but I'm even worse than that, deeper down in my heart. But you have no place here. You have to take that up with Jesus who died and is at the right hand of the throne. That's where you bring your accusations, and Christ has covered all of these things. You won't be crushed if you know this. And finally, what this does is it, it produces long-suffering and patient trust in the midst of all of the difficulties, all of the chaos outside and uncertainties in our lives. You can wait with hope. So what the last couple of verses say. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, Jesus has not only died and satisfied everything for you in salvation, but he's also with you in the midst of all these things. Jesus is with you in the chaos. There's a reason my, I had a, a pastor that would say, there's a reason Jesus is always found in a boat in the midst of the waters, because in Israel, water represented chaos. And Jesus was always on a boat calming the storm with his disciples, letting them trust him in the midst of the chaos. And Jesus is with you in the midst of the chaos. Paul would say, look, if God be for us, then who could be against us? If Christ is with us. Psalm 46, even if the mountains and the earth give way, the Lord is with us in the midst of these things. This gives us confidence in our lives. To trust and obey and to walk beside our Savior. And I hope that is a breath of fresh air in the midst of struggle and the need for confidence in your life. Spurgeon says this, This psalm is a song of cheerful hope, well fitted for those in trial who have learned to lean upon the Almighty arm. It's a song of cheerful hope 
and trial. I'll close with this. Um, several months ago, uh, Catherine and I made the wise parenting choice to, um, to go to Target in the midst of a tornado watch, <laughs> which quickly turned into a tornado warning. And we were in Target, and all of a sudden, you start hearing the rains coming, and you hear the tornado sirens going off. And you hear the, over the loudspeaker, they say, all right, everybody, you need to go to the back of the Target, because uh, we don't really know what's about to happen. So they sent us and probably 200 people back to the back of the Target, and we sat there for an hour and a half. <laughs> and the rains were coming down, and you could hear it on the steel roof, and it was, the, the thunder was roaring, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And in a lot of ways, we were frightened <laughs> about the situation. But if you looked at my daughter, Vivian, <laughs> you wouldn't have thought that all of that was happening. She was dancing around, playing on the ground, eating her dinner, enjoying being with her parents who were there with her in the midst of the storm. And God is there with you in the midst of the storm. Even when it's all roaring around you and you don't know what's to come, God is there with you. Let me pray for us. Father, you are a good God who loves us who has provided all things for us that we might have confidence in you and full assurance that you love us and are for us and will not only be with us now, but will carry us home in your arms like lambs. Uh, Father, help us trust that as we walk back into the storms of our lives and the uncertainty and the chaos that we experience day to day. Um, even so, let us look to Christ and trust Him who went and bore the cross on our behalf. Father, we um, are humbled by Your love and uh, humbled by uh, the love that You have given us and shown us and displayed for us in Christ. And we thank You for all these things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.